Why would Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast. It's story time with Adam Collins and Jeffrey Lemon. Story time is our weekend show, uh, the weekend edition of the Final Word, where we deep dive into our numbers, where we talk to our patrons, where we go through nerd pledges, and where we ultimately reboot an interview that we have done in the past. And today that's going to be with Victor Marks, uh, the former England and Somerset off-spinner, all-rounder, uh, and uh, TMS commentator, and Guardian chief cricket co- correspondent, having, of course, worked at The Observer for a very long time as well. Uh, it's one of the first interviews, Jeff, that we did in the new format. So when I say the new format, back uh, when we did the final word for maybe seasons one, two, and three, or thereabouts, they were short seasons. We talked about the test match stumps uh, at the end of a, of a test match, I should say, and that was kind of it. There might be a, a little bit of back and forth about the, the stories of the week, but it was organised around the central principle that the, the final word was the final word on a test match. Well, in the 1718 Ashes series, we, we broadened our horizons. We started doing long-form interviews, the first of which was Jason Gillespie, but the second one was Vic Marks, and it was a, a lovely chat in his hotel at Perth after the uh, 2017 Wacker test match. Good afternoon to you. There was there was a lot of... Uh, it was one of those big echoey hotel lobbies, I think, and then we found a quiet carpeted corner somewhere and and sat down with Vic, who's one of the loveliest people in the game, you know, a, a genuinely good human being who um, is always happy to have a chat and share a story. And unlike a lot of people who are happy to do that, is also good at listening to other people um, talking as, as well, which, you know, which which can be a challenge for, for some people in the media industry, but not for him. Especially some former players. That's not some broadside at people we work with, but Vic especially uh, is attuned to that. I think that's because he is a journalist as well. I'm not sure whether he would... Sometimes Vic is like self-deprecating about being a, a journalist or about breaking stories and so forth, but he has been doing this for a long, long time. As, as I mentioned before, he started at the Observer in the mid-90s, I think maybe even the early 90s. He was on Test Match Special from, I reckon his first Test Match on there was in 1991. So he's been in and around the game as an observer far longer than he was a player, which makes him a fantastic person to take soundings from and indeed to work with, as we have both on various different broadcasts on TMS, which he uh, has been a stalwart on that show, but also he worked on the World Cup with us last year uh, on the other show that we were making at the time and so on. So, yeah, it's going to be enjoyable. I have not listened back to it yet, but I do remember we were both absolutely knackered. So it was a test match that went the distance. It went to five days. Uh, went to the fifth afternoon, I think, and it was the day that Australia retained the urn uh, and, you know, which meant a lot of writing that night in the, in the Wacker press box. But we got to his hotel at about, say, half past eight at night and we both had flights to catch. We were getting the red eye back to Melbourne and I was meeting Rach, who was flying out to Australia for the first time at the other end. She was also arriving in Melbourne from London. We kind of agreed that she would get there as I returned from Perth. So it was quite a, quite a big day and night. Um, but yeah, fond memories of, uh, I guess, a happier time in all of our lives when you consider uh, how long uh, 2020 has been dragging on for so far. A slightly happier moment than a few shows ago because, or a few days ago on, on the last show, because I realised in the interim that 
hashtag world record Rogers remains intact. The record that Chris Rogers holds for the most consecutive scores between 50 and 100, it wasn't just scores when I first set that record, the the parameters. It was dismissed scores. You had to be out. Yes. And Kale Rahul was not out. Kale Rahul has a not out in his string of seven. One of them is not out. You're off the list, Kale. I'm sorry. You don't qualify. I meant to hit you up. I meant to I, I meant to immediately send you a message. I was, uh, when listening back to that interview last weekend, I, I don't know where I was exactly, but I was on the road somewhere in, in the hire car I had whizzing around the South Coast here. And I'm like, oh, hang on a second. I'm pretty sure when Jeff set this up in 2015, they had to be dismissed. And of course, yeah, KL Rahul was not out in a couple of those. So Rogers reigns supreme as far as players who've been dismissed the most amount of times between 50 and 100. A lovely place uh, to start our statistical dive today. Uh, Jeff, for your part, as we mentioned on the weekly show the other day, you've now finished the book. How's your week free of the manuscript been? It's been pretty quiet. I've watched a lot of Sopranos and um, <laughs> inverted my sleeping habits so that I'm just awake all night, even when there's not cricket on now, because it's like every time I try to get it back to normal, then a test match starts and, and just ruins it again. Right. But I know I've got to go back into it in, in a, a few more days once once the edit's done, you know, maybe a week or so. So I know that it's a, it's a temporary reprieve before we're, you know, elbow deep back in the entrails. You're bracing yourself mm. for what's to come. We're bracing ourselves over here as well. Well, in fact, we're not so much bracing ourselves if we've just had the first the first night of proper teething. Like, actually, Winnie's, Winnie's six months today, uh, 14th of August, we're recording this. And, of course, she was born on Valentine's Day, so that's pretty cool. And she's in great spirits, but the first tooth is through. There's a rash all over her neck, which I gather is quite common when they when they first start getting teeth. And she's pulling on her ears, trying to scratch her face. Her mum was saying to me, um, oh, why doesn't she just, like, stop scratching her face? I'm like, you realise that she's my daughter, don't you? I've, <laughs> I've scratched every scab that I've ever had in my life. This is a, a sort of a, a foregone conclusion. But no, she's in uh, good spirits uh, and, and she started to eat all this food, mushed up food and so on and she's having the time of her life really down at her grandparents' house. So while we've been away from home, she's been able to benefit from getting lots of attention <laughs> even though it's, you know, the first sleepless night, kind of sleepless night was last night when she decided to wail for two hours from 3am which was, you know, it's her prerogative to do exactly that for she is a baby but it didn't make it any any less fun at the time. Do, do, you, do you mean, do you mean wail as in she cried or, or W-H-A-L-E as and she went to sea to try to catch whales, um, the, the verb well, to whale. Yeah, given her appetite at the moment, I wouldn't doubt that she'd love to tuck into a whale, but let's <laughs> hope not. She hasn't eaten any meat yet, and I don't expect she will anytime soon. <laughs> anyway, that's how you and I are going. Oh, some, um, some, some show news yeah. before we go any further. Some show news. On Storytime, I'm bearing the lead here. We should have talked about this five minutes ago. Um, on Storytime, when we first announced we were doing this, uh, a big emphasis was reaching 499, Hanif Muhammad's number, who was our target on the Patreon page, and then Brian Laris, 501. And what do you know, Jeff? What do you know? We've been able to do both of those things in the last two days and that is bloody exciting it's quite the milestone considering uh where we were with this nerd pledge project patron project if you like at the start of uh, coronavirus compared to where we are now five months down the road and the 
sheer volume of people that have decided to help us continue to work in uh, journalism and continue to make the podcast uh, a couple of times a week. Uh, it's now up to exactly 501. The Levi's 501. Um, the, the, we've, so we've levelled Lara, haven't gone past yet. Um, but, you know, Hanif Muhammad was, that, that's what I was aiming for. That's what Lara was aiming for. It was like, got to get past <laughs> that number. Um, and and what, a, what a wonderful thing it is. Thanks to everyone who's in the 501 and everyone who's been on and, uh, and departed in the past as well considering when we set it up we thought maybe we'll get 20 or 30 people on here to uh, help out a little bit uh, it's 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 pretty pretty wonderful thing so uh, clayton lewis was our 498 getting us close there daniel smith was the uh, the, the very important 499 to go level with hanif uh, kieran o'kane got us to the 500 and joe reinhardt has got us to the 501 but of course standing on the shoulders of giants you know couldn't have got there without everybody in the preceding 497 uh, which is which is what Hanif Muhammad thought that he made because the scoreboard was slow. So he was run out for four ninety nine, right? He was on four ninety eight and tried to take a two to come back with a couple of balls left in the day. Um, but he thought he was on four ninety six, so he wasn't that worried about the imminent milestone yet because you know he thought that. Um, that he had a couple of runs less because the scoreboard hadn't caught up. So he thought he was run out for 497. It was like, oh, well, and then found out it was 499. And that's when he got really pissed <laughs> off, I think. Fair enough. Hey, Jeff, I reckon it's time for some... Nerd Pledge. The game of nerds, the game of pledges. The game we play with those aforementioned people on our patron page. They support the show in distinctive style by sending to us not an ordinary number, but a boutique number, a specific number of dollars and cents, or, or as may be possible in the relatively near future in the next few months, it could even be pounds and pence or euros mm. and euro cents. There are new currencies arriving apparently, but I think it'll still work because we'll still be able to see what your number is in your home currency. And that number relates to cricket in some way. Give or take a decimal point that may have to be moved around, it relates to cricket and we have to work out what the number is. And the first off our rank today is a doubleheader from Sam Littlejohn and Will Day, who both elected to send two dollars and ninety cents. Two ninety, two ninety to me, without looking anything up, immediately says Roscoe Taylor at the Wacker that you and I were there, Adam, in 2015 when Mitchell Stark allegedly bowled 160 plus kilometres an hour at one point. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, it yeah. was at the flattest track we have ever seen. Dave Warner made 244 on the first day and a few more the next day. Taylor made that 290, which was the biggest score by a visiting batsman going past the 287 of, of course, Reginald Tip Foster uh, back in back in 1902 or whatever it was. Yeah, that's right. It ended uh, Mitchell Johnson's career, of course. He decided to... He's like, uh, fuck this for a bad joke. I'm no longer running in on these shit heaps in Australia. I'm pulling the pin. And fair enough, too. But we had that really exciting uh, final afternoon where Australia were never going to win the Test match. I think from memory, um, New Zealand was set you know, 400 or something like that. Uh, and Australia had about a session and a half to claim the 10 wickets, given the way the, the slow way the, the test had played out to that stage. And Johnson picked up two in a row. Well, I say two in a row. It might have been two in four balls um, in the space of uh, his first couple of overs. And we're thinking, it, it can't be, can it? In his last day in test cricket, Mitchell Johnson's going <laughs> to... It wasn't. It, it didn't play out that way. It wasn't at all. But still, it was a lovely moment to, to witness both. And, and also it was the, uh, um, the catch on the boundary. Now, 
Who was that? Who caught the substitute fielder caught Ross Taylor at deep mid wicket oh. at two hundred and ninety, and I don't remember who it was now, but I know at the time it was a point of controversy because the Australian players ran up to the fielder to congratulate him for a great catch rather than immediately dashing over to Ross Taylor, which Dirk Nannis took issue with on uh, on the call we were working on at the time, Jeff. So yes, that they're the memories I have from Taylor's two ninety, but it was a wonderful innings. He batted for three hundred and seventy four mm. balls, five hundred and sixty. Seven wickets and uh, it was like, 167 you know, high wickets. Minutes, <laughs> wickets, shit. You got 567. It's yeah, like a no, Jimmy Anderson stat or something from a few tests again. Yeah. No, no, five, six, seven minutes and uh, yeah, in innings that went on and on, but fair enough too after Australia made a shitload he of was, was it, He was the last out, wasn't he? Was he? Yeah, that's right. He was going that's for right. the 300 with the number. Who was batting 11? Hmm. It wasn't. Who was batting? Well, it's either it's one of the, well, it, it could be one of the Bolt. two great New Zealand tailenders. Bolt or Bolt and Southie have the greatest yeah. numbers really ever as number ten to number elevens in terms of six hitting. Well, Southie has the six um, hitting. Isn't that right? Certainly. That Southie it, it, doesn't Bolt have it for number ten? What they what they have is Bolt has it the most sixes from number eleven. Southie has the most sixes from number nine and number ten. Uh, oh right, right. <laughs> so, and, but he also has um, he's also fifteenth. No, on the, hang on, I was looking at this the other day. I think he's lost a place because Ben Stokes has gone past him. Um, Stokes sort of came out of nowhere from a couple of years ago in terms of the, the sixes he's hit in Test cricket in the last twelve months or so. You know, eight of them at Headingley alone. So mm. Stokes has shot up into that top, and and Southie might be. Uh, I might just pull up the list because it, it's a it's a wonderful little memento. Yeah, he's he's sixteenth. With 72 sixes in his career, uh, he's only a couple away from going past. He's one away from equaling Ricky Ponting. Um, he's only a few away from going past Donny Peterson. <laughs> but if you look at the players he's ahead of, he's hit more sixes in Test cricket than Clive Lloyd, Eunice Khan, Sachin Tendulkar, Ian Botham, Gordon Greenwich, AB de Villiers, Carl Hooper. They're the next ones down the list from Tim Southie. <laughs> Must mean that, that does that mean that Tim Southey's a better cricketer than Sachin Tendulkar? I guess so. Yeah. Oh no. And he's hit, oh, no. and he's done it in in a third as many Test matches as well. So he's obviously three times as good. I had a I had a um, an amusing exchange on Twitter last week. There was something to do with Owen Morgan doing something that surpassed Ted, Sachin Tendulkar, which I naturally had a bit of fun with at the time. And someone very earnestly was coming back at me time and time again, trying to explain why Sachin Tendulkar is a better player than Owen Morgan. And I just couldn't help myself. It was just, it was just. I, I kept the conversation going for about ten replies. I'm like, no, no, this is too, this yeah. is too much fun. Did Sachin ever have the rub of the green? That is the question. You know, don't think so. <laughs> Don't think so. Yeah. Rubber the blue, maybe. Rubber, you know, but no green. So let, let's give Roscoe to Sam Little John. Okay. I've got something for Will Day. Okay. Uh, something that I found during the week, which I'm going to eventually consult Andrew Sampson on. But one must uh, control the amount of emails they send to the greatest statistician in the game. Otherwise, they might. We're out there. Welcome. Stop replying to them. <laughs> yeah, we're out there. Welcome. I think he loves it because every time you tweet him with a really obscure question, he replies within ten minutes. You know, I, I don't think he. Yeah, well, we, and we made the and we made the times yesterday. I saw that uh, the, the Times County writer <laughs> in his like week weekend roundup or you know round roundup of the Bob Willis Trophy, like a column type, several sections. There was a section dedicated to Ian Holland and the and the obscure um, stat that I talked about on Storytime last week that Andrew Sampson was able to add to. So we were. 
mentioned in passing in the national press. But uh, this probably won't uh, do that. It, it's for Ravi Bapara fans, though. And I know there's a lot of Ravi Bapara fans uh, who listen to the final word. The recall Ravi hashtag still gets a, mm. a run on Twitter from time to time. Um, right, so Ravi's bowling average in test cricket was 290. And, of course, this is um, $2.90. So I, I, it, that, that, that in itself is interesting, given that Ravi is a legitimate all-rounder, especially in white ball cricket. But Ravi's you know, a fine bowler and has been over many years. Um, so what I found interesting here was that a, a test bowling average of 290, he played 13 test matches, one wicket, which he picked up in 2007. So he'd, he'd wish that he hadn't got one. Match. If, he had, if he just hadn't got a wicket, he wouldn't have an average. It'd be infinity. Well, <laughs> yeah. that, that's well put. Well, in his third, third of 13 tests at goal, he picked up Prasanna J. Wadner, caught behind for a duck. That was the innings where Mahalo made a double ton against England, uh, by the way, the other J. Wadner. But um, where, where I think this might be a one-off or, or it might be a record is that who, it could, may it be the case that nobody has a bigger gap between their test bowling average and their first-class bowling average. So Ravi Papara has taken 259 wickets at first-class level at an average of 36, and his test bowling average is 290. So um, without um, embarrassing myself by doing the maths, I'll do it 254. 254 is the gap between test and, and first class. I, I just wonder whether that might be a record in itself. Mm-hmm. We will find out. But either way, I'm going to give that to Will Day as my contribution for 290. Thanks to both Will and to Sam. Nice one. The, the other thing that it did make me think of, it's not specifically 290, but but uh, bowling average is around 29 because uh, initially, you know, I, I thought that you were probably referring to Ravi Bapara having a bowling average of 29, but it's it's actually 290. But <laughs> Graham Swan, we talked about some weeks ago, having a bowling average of in the 29s just because he, he ended his career with uh, with 29.96 as his test bowling average. He, of course, walked off during the, the Perth test match when his arm had gone completely numb and Shane Watson was absolutely monstering him. Now, I... I Double check these numbers because I mentioned them briefly uh, a few weeks ago, but didn't didn't have the full detail. So Swan went for twenty two from his last over in Test cricket. That's when he was like, you know what, I'm done. <laughs> Pull the pin. Watto hit him for a couple of sixes, a couple of fours. Uh, mon- had monstered him in the previous few overs as well. Not quite as badly, but you know, pretty badly. And at that point, he wouldn't have known his numbers specifically, probably. But he was like, all right, I'm out. Had he continued bowling? and conceded eight more runs, he would have ended up with a career average in the 30s rather than the 20s. He was eight runs away. <laughs> so, it's like the reverse. <laughs> in every possible way, it's like the reverse Bradman, isn't it? So it would have been... So Swan, yeah, I'm, I wonder whether he did know that. I mean, he probably didn't, but I, I mentioned Jonathan Wilson briefly on, on the weekly show. He's written this fabulous essay in The Night Watchman about Lance Gibbs and mortality and his family and Sunderland. And it, it's a beautiful piece of writing, which I uh, strongly recommend to you. I think it's actually now um, been released from behind the paywall, but in any case, by The Night Watchman. But the writer of that piece here, Jonathan Wilson, he calculates his career bowling average over on over while he's playing for the author's 11. So at the end of a spell, he'll know exactly what his figures are and he would have already calculated in his head what that means across the entirety of the games he's played for the author's 11 and what it now makes his new bowling average. He does it all, like, as he's standing at mid-off or whatever. I've seen him do it. It's... Slightly freakish, but also quite brilliant. So maybe Graham Swan has that kind of brain as well. I, I don't think he does, but I like to believe that he knew. I think he would have known he was close. I, I don't know if he would have known 
run per run, you know, what what he needed yeah. to clean up with. But anyway, he, he got out. Because well, players can fall. It can kind of affect batsmen that way, can't it, as well? Mm. Like Michael Clark had a 49 rather than a 50 because he would have needed to have made about 180-odd in his last test match. But if not for the previous three or four where he failed, he would have comfortably ended up above 50 had he made a, you know, a halfway decent um, contribution across that Ashes series. Mm. And, and I think the same applies for... Ricky Ponting, and I'm not sure exactly what number it was, but he fell just below another one in his final test match at Perth. So, um, yeah, usually batsmen fall the other way, but but Swan yeah. just held on to a bowling average with a two in front of it, which for a spinner is no mean feat. I remember when, when Steve Waugh was worrying about that, when he was right down in the very low 50s and he was desperate to finish above 50 and he was in South Africa in oh two oh three whatever it was oh yeah no you're right because it was Steve Waugh no you're absolutely spot on what it actually was was that in that innings where he makes the 100 at Sydney he started the innings with a batting average with as 49 he passes his 10,000th run when he made in fact I think it was his 69th nice run um took him to 10,000 in test cricket which meant that if he had got out then for an even 10,000, I think his batting average would have been 50.00, had he not, of course, right. batted in the second innings and so on. But, yeah, that was when it was it could have gone either way for war. He ended up finishing with an average of 51 or 52, didn't he? Because he cashed in um, against the West Pakistan, Indies in 02 or 03, and then uh, it was at Bangladesh up in the top-end test, and then eventually um, against India he did well enough uh, to, to keep his average above that watermark. But, yes, it, it could have gone either way for Steve War as well. Yeah, there was, so there was in that South Africa game, he had there was a point where he was on exactly Fifty. He needed forty-seven runs in the innings to keep his average above fifty, and he was caught at slip by Jacques Callis for forty-seven. I remember listening to it on, on the radio and being, being quite overwhelmed at the time. Uh, we should probably get onto the second number, but, but, but thank probably. you, Sam and Will. Sachmo um, Distel and Dane Hanstead, a, a classic double act, have both come in. Well, the first one was two dollars ninety. The second one is two dollars ninety-one. We're moving a long way in this instance. At two ninety-one, Sachmo sent us a message to say that he became a cricket fan in 1976, which means that this must be Viv Richards' highest score in Test cricket, which was 291. Yeah. Made on that that tour, right? Absolutely. It it was. um, The tour where Viv made in excess of 800 runs and, and, you know, smart judges say it's it's the best series, certainly the best televised series um, from an individual player. He made another double tonne along the way. I actually saw highlights of this come up on Twitter, thanks to Rob Alinda, the great man, um, a couple of days ago. And I, I noticed some correspondence with Mike Selby, who um, was bowling to Viv in that 291. And um, it, it just reminded me that Selby, a very strange test career in a way, because he started, his debut was the previous test match. So when England played the Windies at Old Trafford, he took three for six from his first 20 balls in test cricket to start that match, including Viv for four. So an incredible arrival to test cricket the windies at that stage were three for 19 uh and and it's and it's going pretty well um his next test match was that aforementioned uh master class from viv richards where he makes 291 selby's at the bowling crease for a lot of those runs and he ends up uh, having a a wicketless test match so from the the heights of you know three wickets in his first 20 balls to a wicketless test match drops from the side 
only plays one more test match in uh, in India the following year, and, and that's it, three tests. But um, uh, yes, I, I saw that Selv was was taking almost enjoyment in watching himself get smashed around by Viv, and of course, uh, from Selby's perspective, there's never been a better player that he's seen uh, than the great IVA Richards. So I think that that sits quite nicely um, as far as the 291 for Sachmo Distel. Sometimes it's just nice to be there. Now Dane also sent a clue, which was that. This number was right up my alley, which has put me in a bit of a tailspin because I'm like, what's what's my thing? What's my shtick? Like, what do I do? I, you know, what do I talk about all the time? I've looked at Clary Grimmett related things, couldn't find anything. Looked at Victor Trumper related things, couldn't find anything for for two point nine one or two ninety one. I looked at uh, the only thing I could find was I looked at the relatively obscure, in-depth list of everybody's economy rates in the history of Test cricket and and found a nice (laughs) pairing of uh, two two bowlers who both conceded 2.91 runs per over over the course of their careers. Two that go together in legend. They are, of course, on the one hand, Wes Hall, the great West Indian quick, and on the other hand, the aforementioned Michael Clark, part-time left-arm spinner, um, both went went at two point nine one and over. But aside from that, uh, what's up my alley? I mean, what do I? T- what's my thing? What do I talk about all the time? Yeah, I mean, the, what I looked at, I don't think that would tick that box. So, I mean, it was Craig McDermott's test wickets. I mean, maybe it could be that, Jeff. You've been watching pretty closely uh, bowlers overtake McDermott over the last few years. I suppose there mm-hmm. was Johnston, and now. And now more recently, Lyon. Nathan Lyon. So um, I, I guess that could be it. Carl Rackerman's bowling average was uh, 29.1. Ramnaresh Sharwan made a test 291 as well. Of course, the other man to make that score, he made it against England in 2009 when the Windies racked up 749 for nine in a very high scoring draw. But I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe Craig McDermott's wickets tally, but it doesn't quite sing true. So we might have to do more work on Danes, but... Yeah, maybe we're close. Let us know. Drop us a message. As we always say, if we haven't got your number right or we struggled with it, um, the beauty of the, the Patreon DMs is they come straight to our phone. So um, you send us a message and, and we get back to you as quickly as we can and we really enjoy um, doing that. So, Dane, drop us a line. Have we got anywhere near the mark? Uh, if so, great. If not, we'll go again next week on Storytime. Thank you, Dane. And Satchmo, number three is Michael Reichstein, which, of course, means Michael Kingdom Rock in German, which is probably some sort of Christian revivalist band, I'm assuming. Are you ready for well, Kingdom that mean, Rock? Does that, mean, does, does that mean that Ramstein was something rock? Ram. Stein, yeah, Stein means stone. I don't know what R-A-M-M means in German. But, um, okay, okay. Well, maybe it's just named after a place because, of course, there's the, there's the, uh, the military base Ramstein, isn't there? Hmm. The Air Force base the Americans have. Anyway, we better address the number. What is it? So it's $4.40. Yes. What uh, do you got? Well, well $4.40 is, is interesting because it's related to a time when Donald George Bradman was at the height of his powers. We talk about him a bit on this show because he, he's got a few stats related to him, DGB. This was an interesting one because this was the, the, the one match that England won in 1934 when they smashed Australia by an innings oh, at yeah. Lords. They made 440. And it was notable because Headley Verity, the, the left-arm spinner, another one, got Bradman out, dominated Bradman, got him out for 36. They made Australia follow on and then got him for 13. And the dismissals were caught and bowled and then caught behind. So these are you know proper left-arm spinners' dismissals to, to the left-hander. Outside that test match... Well, including those runs there, Bradman still made 758 runs in the series um, and Australia won it 2-1 at 
the last at the Oval in, in the fifth match. I so think I'm missing the I'm, I'm, I'm missing the 440. 440 is what so England made at Lords when they oh right they to, made that they went on to yeah, bowl and, Australia and, out twice after that and win by an inning twice in a day twice in a day. So uh, that's a very famous match, the Headley Verity match. Um, so it was rain affected through the middle stages. So after they they pile on those runs, they basically bowl Australia out twice. On the final day, they just get there with, I think, quarter of an hour to go. Verity takes 14 wickets on the final day. It's also the first test match ever to be broadcast on radio. So Howard Marshall, the great Howard Marshall, on his own, sitting up there in in the tavern stand or the tavern um, hotel as it was at the time, but that was his vantage point. And he was calling the Verity wickets and so goes the story. Because the wickets were falling so quickly, he actually couldn't keep up with what was going on, mm. which was the reason why the next test match at Old Trafford, they gave him a scorer. So suddenly he had someone to basically sit next to him and ride shotgun and make sure that he got all of his reporting correctly. But there is audio of, uh, of Headley Verity's um, uh, wickets that still exist. It's, it's on the BBC archive. We were able to get some during the Calling the Shots program. And, and the way that, I mean, Howard Marshall calls that wouldn't be out of place uh, in, in modern commentary. He was a master. He had a wonderful voice and a true pioneer. So that all happened that week at Lords. Hmm. The previous year when they first let Marshall to start doing some dispatches, not quite ball by ball as such, but he was doing reports. At the end of play, he needed to file his uh, his dispatch not from inside the ground. There was some brouhaha with the MCC and he had to go off-site to do it. So there was um, a house that he would go to um, down the road in, in St. John's Wood uh, and you can hear on the, on the back of the tape the sound of a girl playing piano because in this house there was a piano lesson taking place at the same time, which was <laughs> when the BBC were able to finally mount the case. Come on, guys, you have to let us broadcast inside the venue. You can't, let, you ha- you can't make our guys have to run down the road and do his report then come back again to watch and back and forth and back and forth and that was the first match the the Headley Verity match in 1934 where they were actually stationed at the ground and able to do their reports on test cricket so uh, a bit of history there you can listen back to more about that I think it was on episode two of calling the shots if memory serves me correctly and and tragically of course uh, Verity did die in the war he died in uh, 1944 so um, there's tons of great writing about his career and his military service as well but uh, without doubt one of the greats of English cricket I think that's the match mentioned by Hercule Poirot in one of the um, uh, maybe it's a TV adaptation of of one of the Agatha Christie books about um, that it was obvious that Verity was going to take wickets on a rain affected surface and and so on and so forth so that's what we're going with michael reichstein drop us a line let us know next up gregory wellman how are you gregory well man seven dollars 35 thank you gregory that's very nice of you uh 735 what does 735 suggest adam well the number that immediately jumped out was 735 for six is what australia made when matthew hayden made his 380 against zimbabwe in 2003 that was a crazy innings really they went at five and over and really pounded them across 146 and a half overs the last time that Zimbabwe came to Australia sadly um Tony Locke took the only seven for 35 in international cricket against New Zealand in 1958 but what I want it to be what I hope it is Jeff (laughs) is nothing to do with cricket played on grass I hope it's something to do with cricket played in nets. I'm sure, Jeff, you, like I, played a lot of indoor cricket as a kid. And, of course, when you lose a wicket playing indoor cricket, you lose five runs, 
Well, when Mitchell Johnson stopped playing international cricket, we've already mentioned Mitch today, he kept playing C-grade indoor with his mates in Perth. We at least turned out for one game of C-grade indoor with his mates in Perth against a team called Bowling Darts. And well, I suppose that's what Johnson was bowling, darts, but they were quick enough. He picked up seven for negative 35, which means that he <laughs> picked up from his 12 deliveries because you bowled 12 balls in indoor. I guess that means he had five dots and seven wickets. Oof. For seven for negative 35, including a stumping. So I'm not sure if Johnson ever had a stumping off him in any form of cricket before. But um, And I think the best part of that was his team was still pumped. Bowling darts still beat them by a mile. So Johnson played in a, in a losing C-grade uh, indoor game after taking seven for across two overs. So I think that's my favourite seven for 35, albeit... Um, with that slight amendment, seven for negative 35. What do you say, Gregory? Well, man, am I close to the mark? I, I think you've got to go with that. There's no way we can not go with that. Thank you, Gregory. Uh, last of our new numbers today, Brooke Quinn. Thank you, Brooke. $3.11. Now, three eleven to me immediately says Hashim Amla, uh, because we've spent a lot of time looking at the triple centuries list. Mm. And that was, was that at Lord's? No, it was at the Oval. No, was I was the there, Oval. actually. It was, it was the week, uh, it was the between the Olympics and the Paralympics, I reckon. And I took a couple of days off and went down and uh, sat with some mates and drank some beers and watched Hashim Amla bat for almost the entirety of the time we were at the cricket. Mm. So uh, uh, that was in their sort of breakthrough series, really, where they, they won in England and in turn were able to become the, the top team in the top team uh, in the world winning that series. I think it was 2-1 in 2012. So... That's a decent shout. There's another 311 in Test cricket, of course, Jeff. The, I think people, you, you've looked at bad 300s. People often say the worst 300 was Bobby Simpson's mm-hmm. uh, in Manchester in 1964 because he took 743 balls to make 311 in what was a fairly dreary uh, draw, a very dreary draw. I think, I think, would I be right in saying, Jeff, that not, they didn't even reach the third innings? Both teams went big. There was rain and they were just happy to have a, a stalemate. So happy Simpson to be there. and Amla just happy to be both here, made 311. <laughs> I remember the band 311. When I lived in America when I was 17, there was a band called 311 who used to get a fair bit of airtime. I doubt okay. it relates to them, though, because why would, why would Brooke Quinn be talking about a band that briefly made a mark in Western New York in 2001? Probably not. There were a lot of, there were a lot of bands with a number in their name around that, that time. That was the year of, you know, Sum 41 and Blink-182. That's uh, true. It, you, you be 40, you know. <laughs> There was, was a lot going on. Uh, it might it be that Zahir Khan took three and three hundred eleven Tests wickets? Could be. Is is Brooke Quinn be. a Zahir freak? Maybe. maybe. Big be. post. A couple of big posters. Of, uh, the only ZK other thing. On the, I, the, the only other thing I spotted, Jeff, was that both Alec Bedser and Vernon Philander, their cap numbers were three eleven, and I suppose you would say they were similar in what they were doing as as opening bowlers, landing the ball on the spot. Pace wasn't as much of a factor as, as their consistency. So uh, maybe um, Brooks a fan of, of that sort of uh, part of the game, which occasionally we see at test level, but not an awful lot. But when we do, we really do respect and appreciate it. So those are the new numbers that we've put into Nerd Pledge to get us going on story time. If you want to send us a number, you just go to patron.com slash the final word. And in doing so, you can help support the show, which is why we're able to do things like do this second show on the weekends and have a lot of fun with it. And importantly, if Brooke or Gregory or Michael or Satchmo or Dane 
or Sam or Will uh, want to get in touch with us and tell us that we've got it radically wrong, please do so, and we'll revisit it on next week's story time. That's a, that's a pretty fun part of what we do. Is we, we have a crack, and if we get close, that's wonderful, and if we don't, we revisit numbers. And, Jeff, that's what we're going to do now in the second part of story time. So Sam Ashworth, he sent through $2.26, and we dealt with this last week. We had quite a few emails uh, back about two twenty six from those who submitted the number and those who, who thought it was quite interesting. So Sam said that it was his number was about the 2005 Ashes. So it wasn't about the Super Series in 2000. It wasn't about that, that list of Australian losses having made 226. He was looking at the 05 Ashes, which I suppose is also an Australian loss. But the best I could come up with here was that both Steve Harmison and Freddie Flintoff picked up 226 wickets in their test careers, and they were crucial to England's win in the 2005 Ashes. Does that sound about right to you? That sounds hard to beat when you've got two of the key protagonists ending up on the same number, you know, the, the, the series that they'll be identified with for the rest of their lives. And, uh, well, Simon Jones as well, the, the last series that he played. Uh, Elise Gain had sent us... 226 as well and actually sent us a, a sort of Tolkien style riddle to go with it which I neglected to to include in deliberations last week which which goes like this it says I am a first as well as a second I belong to one of the greatest cricketers to have ever donned the baggy green so come on down to the rodeo and take a guess at this nerd pledge now donned the baggy green is is obviously a little gesture at don Bradman, who made a 226, which we did mention in Brisbane. We did. Uh, mm. A first as well as a second in that it was a, a double century. Um, I don't know what it was the first. It wasn't his first double century. It was his first It was his first um, score against South Africa, his first time playing against South Africa or, or playing against, I think he playing against anyone but England. Uh, so it might be a first there and it's a second in that it's a double century. And but I'm not sure where the rodeo is going unless because this wasn't one of the matches that was played at the Ecker at the exhibition ground in Brisbane. This was played at the Gabba. Um, so unless there was there was a dog track at the Gabba, but did they have rodeos at the Gabba? <laughs> I mean, they might have. It's Queensland. They definitely had them at the Ecker. Yeah, the only international venue where they have rodeos was a ground that we were at a few years ago, Jeff, for the Women's Ashes at Coffs Harbour. Yeah, which in addition to being a cricket ground is where they hold rodeos and do a number of other. Uh, bits and pieces up there as you in would. Uh, New South Wales. Yeah, why well, wouldn't you? They played footy there, oh. of course. Well, you, you see, you see how it works. If you put rodeos and cricket together, you get Rodeo Drive. Uh, sure, the famous I mean, shopping strip in Los Angeles, worldwide if, if you want known, to, known worldwide, where Winona Ryder got picked up for shoplifting. <laughs> if you want it to work, Jeff, it works for it me. Works. Thank I, you, Elise. I do want Maybe. It. Uh, what I do want to know, Elise, is why why that two two six. So I'm, I reckon we've got it, and, and maybe the rodeo bit will explain, the bit we're failing with here will explain why you've gone with this, but get in touch with us and let us know. Also on 226, Seb Goldsmith sent us a tweet letting us know that when we were speculating about who, who hit the roof at the Docklands, well, it wasn't Andrew Simons, it was Mike Hussey in 2005 who hit the roof for the first time. I reckon Aaron Finch did it in a big bash game a few years after that. Our next revisit was from Ryan Smith and his five... 31, which we dealt with a little while ago. He effectively gave us uh, uh, the answer in that he said it was from the first ever test match at Adelaide where Billy Bates uh, bowled 24.1 overs, 10 maidens, 5 
for 31. Um, but I must say, having read a little bit about Billy Bates in Wisdom last night, it makes me want to read an awful lot more. It's a tragic tale, according to uh, the Wisdom uh, report on his life. Um, his career was cut short by a freak injury in Australia in 80. 80- 1887-88, um, he was bowling in the nets when a straight drive from one of his teammates hit him in the face, damaging his eyesight so badly that he never played first-class cricket again. After that, he became depressed and attempted suicide. Allegedly, that was on the boat on the way home. I read in a different article he, he um, uh, tried to end his life. Thankfully, that wasn't the case. All up, he took 50 wickets in 15 tests, but they were all played in Australia, would you believe? So he came to Australia three times and got all these test matches, but never got a Guernsey at home, which to this day remains the most amount of tests played away from home without getting a start at home, if you like. So his bowling average was only 16.4. His finest hour coming in 1882-83 when he took seven for 28 and seven for 74. And that included the first test hat-trick by an Englishman. He died in 1900 uh, in Yorkshire, where he was from, at, at age 45. But um, he left a, a major contribution uh, on the game uh, before the turn of the 20th century, Billy Bates. And, of course, uh, that performance at Adelaide 5 for 31 was one of a, a great string of performances against the Australians in that, in that wonderful early pioneering era of Test cricket. So I'm going to go away now and read more about Bates because he sounds like a yeah, fascinating character and a, a brilliant career cut short, unfortunately, due to that accident in the nets. You may perhaps be dealing with another career that might be a little bit shorter than it it could have been. Peter Halton's 181, uh, he sent us through a note to say a clue for the answer would be that I had hoped between submitting the pledge and now that the number would need updating. Yeah, and, fr- and from there, I, I had this in my head because last week I was looking at Moeen Ali's um, career generally and kind of wondering if he doesn't play for England again. And look, there's a chance he won't. There really is a chance he won't play for England again, I reckon, Moeen. Uh, if they're looking for some generation change in that white ball team, which they might be thinking ahead to the next World Cup, uh, and obviously he's, out, he's well out of the test team at the moment. Although he might get used in a subcontinent uh, in the UAE, I should say, when England play India there early next year. But Moeen Ali has 181 test wickets uh, at an average of... 37. Of course, he's also made five test tons, which you'd think would mean he'd be still a player they were keen to use at age 33. But yeah, it's a confusing career. Even in one day cricket, he averages 50 with the ball and 25 with the bat. But you would almost think that based on some of his match winning performances, that those numbers could be reversed, but not so. Uh, and Moeen is now yeah, out of the test side. He was vice captain of the one day side, which meant he was actually leading England when they lost to Ireland last week because Owen Morgan was, was off the field um, with an injury for the fielding innings. But Yes, uh, I can see where Peter's going with that. He would have hoped that Moeen by this stage would have added to his 181 test wickets, but hasn't as yet. Let's hope he gets the opportunity to, to play again. Jack Firth's 4.45. We, we had a couple of guesses around that um, going via Calcutta 2001 or Adelaide 1978. Uh, they, they weren't there. They weren't it. He said, think England rather than Australia and also noted that Adam would not have been there for it uh, and, and also noted that they're expecting their first child soon and says one of the absolute joys of this podcast has been hearing about Winnie. In fact, my wife Rosie now asks for updates. So I hope you were listening into the, the hot teething content earlier in this show, the, the, the quality, the, the, the Winnie fans out there finding out where her dentures are at. Jack, I'm just going to give you one piece of advice, hypnobirthing. I don't know if you've done it yet, if you've done the course hypnobirthing yet, do it, learn it, live it. 
it made an enormous difference when push came to shove, literally, um, uh, on on the day in question. The fact that Rach and by extension I had gone through the hypnobirthing course made a mammoth difference. So that's my one piece of advice to you as you build towards your big day. <laughs> Hypnobirthing. Uh, things that I don't know what they are and will never have to. Glory be. <laughs> so we, we had the 445 from Jack. He said it was England related. The best that I could come up with is that 445 is what England made at the Oval in 1998, was it? When they lost to Sri Lanka, they made 445, thought they were going pretty well. And then Sanath Jayasuriya, the man of many phones, um, came out and plundered a double hundred before Murali took about 83 wickets in the test and, uh, and, and bowled them out in that standalone test match. That's, that's all I've got. It's the Murali magic test, not just because he took... I want to say 16, 16 15, yeah. 16 wickets. It's the volume of overs that he bowled. I, I can't remember who wrote about this recently, but it was a wonderful essay, uh, and I regret not remembering who it was because I, I want to direct traffic towards it. But Google it, uh, uh, and, and you'll and you'll find some writing recently in the last six months or so. And what it effectively says is, don't just look at the wickets column, look at the overs bowled. And you kind of get a, a broader picture of just how accurate he was, how hard he was to get away, how he earned these wickets over bowling hour after hour after hour. The true sort of set and forget operator at one end um, and earned uh, that chance for a famous win for Sri Lanka. The only other one that I came up with based on the clue that I wasn't there was that in 2016, England set Pakistan 445 in a one-day international at Trent Bridge. So that was the world record when England made 444, uh, where they, uh, where Alex Hales smacked 171. It was complete carnage. But the reason I wasn't there was because I was in Sri Lanka covering the Australian team at the time. I mean, that's fairly obscure. If Jack knows that was the case, he must must have been following what I was doing then pretty closely. But, <laughs> it, I mean, it, it ticks the box. So I haven't got anything better than that though so maybe you'll need to come back to us during the week jack that's both flattering and intimidating <laughs> keeping such close tabs um but, but you know keep keeping them you'll you'll keep getting all the baby news you need uh the discussion around a 705 that we were talking about from alan last week was that it was the highest first class score from a team that went on to lose given that there was a, a first innings technicality in the Ranji Trophy final about which team made more in the first innings. <laughs> um, a, a couple of bits in the mailbag. Uh, this is story time, of course, and, and Chris Arkell wrote to say he hopes that we're naming the show after Stuart Story, who won two county cup finals <laughs> as an all-rounder. In 1974, he made two runs and didn't bowl. In 1978, he didn't bowl and was not, not out. He's the Jody Hicks of county cup finals <laughs> in the 1970s. Um, thanks for coming, Stuart Story. And, you know, he, he, he may be uh, quietly linked to, to story time forever from now on. And one from Terry Hogan, who's been a fantastic correspondent with us on the patron DMs of late, letting us know that he's got some more Plum Warner content for us. Well, Plum we content. We love, give give we me love the plums. Plum content. Want the plums. Uh, at, right plums. Well, here's, here's one for you. At age 53, he led an MCC tour of South America in 1926-27. Plum Warner on the Bolivian Staminade. Imagine that. <laughs> they, they played in Uruguay, Argentina, Chile and Peru. Uh, the matches in Peru were the first international cricket played in that country and the Lima Cricket and Football Club that hosted the MCC included the father of future England captain Freddie Brown. Very, very good, Terry. He went 
further down the rabbit hole and noted that a combined South American team toured England in 1932, but unfortunately it never caught on. In his final little factoid here, it relates to matches played between Peru and Brazil. This is in more modern times. So since 2011, when Peru played Brazil, the winner of any men's match is awarded the Amistad Cup, which is a thermos flask... <laughs> <laughs> and the loser is given the spork, which was found as a hidden extra in the lid of the thermos. As he says here, not the, not quite the calibre of the story of the ashes, but these things have to start somewhere. Well, Terry, well done. That's an absolute corker. Thank you. Uh, and the next time that Peru do play Brazil, please let us know because we'll make sure we make a big deal of it on the final word. The Amistad Cup, of course, means the Friendship Cup. And a thermos does have a cup with it. You know, that's one of the beauties of the thermos. So it's, it, is, it is a cup. It'd be a more effective drinking <laughs> vessel than the actual men's 50 over World Cup, which is a sphere <laughs> that Brad Haddon famously tried to pour a lot of beers into and couldn't work out why they didn't go into it because it was round and, and that, was, that really stumped him for quite a long time. You can see him in the background uh, in the, the change rooms on all the telecasts of after the 2015 World Cup final. And the last bit of correspondence was from Kamal Mann who sent me a, a wonderful letter from a Wisdom Cricket Monthly from the 90s. Now, a couple of shows ago, whenever it was, you, you may recall, Adam, that I was getting fairly feisty with the Don, with Don Bradman for ending Clary Grimmett's test career, punting him from the test team for the mediocre talents of, relatively speaking, of the leg spinner Frank Ward. Now, apparently, while the Don was still alive, he was incensed at this uh, this insinuation made by Bill O'Reilly and wrote this stern letter uh, to WCM where he goes into quite some detail about there's this there's this roundabout argument. I won't read it all to you, but but that well, Grimmett was first dropped when when Bradman wasn't on the selection committee, so that wasn't his fault. Um, then he bowled badly in the first three uh, are they body line tests in thirty two thirty three. So there must have been yeah yeah. So th- so he's dropped for the fourth and fifth test because he doesn't bowl very well. Then he goes to South Africa and takes a million wickets. But Bradman says, well, we all knew that they were pretty weak at batting, so that didn't really count, apparently. And then it all came down. So, so Ward had taken a few wickets in the shield that summer and, and it was okay and he was younger. Then this is, this is the real crux of it for Bradman. In October 1936, this is him writing, the ACB arranged a testimonial match for Warren Bardsley and Jack Gregory at the SCG, the game becoming a testing ground for Ward versus Grimmett. Ward was at a disadvantage because he was bowling against the recent Australian touring side. And Ward took 12 wickets in the match and Grimmett took seven. The selectors saw the match and decided in their wisdom that they would take Ward to England and not Grimmett. Um, and then he goes on to say that Ward had a great tour because he took a, a bunch of wickets averaging 19 in England, which is very convenient, Don. It's a very, like, if you want to manipulate the stats to support your argument, that's the way to do it. Frank Ward played one test in England, mate, because he wasn't deemed to be good enough. And in that one test, he got smashed around. I think he took, what, what did he take? One wicket in the test that he played? All of the rest of his wickets were in the tour games. Frankly, who gives a shit what he averaged bowling against 
against whatever Shire he was playing against. And the fact that it all came down to a testimonial match, that's not how you pick <laughs> test teams, Donald. The <laughs> testimonial match between Warren Barsley and Jack Gregory. Was Pluck a Duck playing, Donald? Was they, <laughs> did, they, did they have any underarms that they rolled down for funny jokes? You know, like, was Gary, was Gary Ablett batting at number yeah, four? Where, like, where, where was Godra in the lineup? For was, was, was he playing for the Jack Gregory team or the Warren Barsley team? Don't give me this bullshit about a testimonial match. Give me the Did Stephen Kernahan bowl first change? If he didn't, that wasn't a testimonial game. The first bowler ever to 200 test wickets, still just about the fastest uh, per wickets per match ratio. You don't slide off Clary Grimmett on the basis of a testimonial. That is self-serving, after-the-fact, self-justifying bullshit, Don, and you are better than that. And what a great place to leave today's story time with a rant from Jeff about D.G. Bradman, absolutely spot on. If you want to get involved in the fun, in story time, each weekend... You can do so very easily, Jeff. It's patreon.com forward slash the final word. Get your nerd pledge in. As you said, off the top, we, we've hit 499 and we've hit 501. We will, we will set a new mark. And that's exciting uh, because I think when we set the 499 for Hanif Muhammad, we had no expectation of getting there. No. And we've done so um, in, well, what have we, we've done so in the space of five months, which is just incredible. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, we, we couldn't be more grateful. I have calmed down now and I echo those sentiments calmly and, and modestly. Look, I appreciate all the things Don Bradman did. I, I just don't appreciate some of the other things. That's I think we're allowed to have nuance in this world. Let's, <laughs> uh, let's go and have a chat to uh, someone I've never had a problem with, Vic Marks. One thing we've been trying to do on The Final Word over the last few weeks is point people in the direction of the Lord's Taverners. They're doing some fantastic work around the UK because, let's be blunt, everyone's life is kind of shit at the moment. Um, but that's magnified a lot more if you're living with a disability or, or living with disadvantage. And it's particularly kids in those situations that the Lord's Taverners try to help out. They're based around Lords at the Marlebone Cricket Club, of course, and they try to get out into the community, uh, use cricket programs where they can and, and other programs as well to help provide uh, company and comfort and activities to to help kids out who are in difficult situations and who are having to deal with more than they should have to deal with in life and that's exacerbated at the moment with the kind of drama that we're all living through. Yeah sometimes when we're talking about our partners with the final word it's kind of a fun tone and we have a bit of a laugh well I wish we could have that laugh when we were talking about Lord's Taverners at the moment but that's just not the case. I mean, we know from the data how uh, isolation hits uh, people living with disabilities and we know how much work the Lord's Taverners do each year. It's just all drawn into focus in 2020. So 12,000 young people per year um, benefit from the award-winning programs that the Lord's Taverners are involved in um, at basically targeting disadvantaged and disabled young people to fulfil their potential and build their life skills. So uh, this, these cricket programs are, are targeting, as I say, some of the most marginalised and at-risk people at the UK, using sport and recreation to build links between communities and encouraging groups to play sport together. And really, Jeff, we know that with lockdowns as they've been and isolation as has been required through coronavirus, this is tough. This is hard yards. And that's why uh, for a charity like Lord's Taverners, which has been going since 1950, around for 70 years, one of the leading sports youth charities in the country, that uh, binding around them and supporting them and providing uh, comfort where we can financially is a really big deal. And they have this isolate campaign running at the moment where we can make those sorts of small contributions. Yeah, it's a pretty 
basic premise. Um, it's if you put the number eight in the word isolate, you'll be able to figure out what they mean. They're trying to get people to donate eight pounds or eight dollars, um, whatever currency you want to work in. And then more importantly, I suppose, is to send that on to eight other people and ask them to be involved, to try to get a word of mouth going, to try to spread that network, to to get a broader number of people able to contribute to the programs. And it's a broad range of people that Lord Stavenus try to help in at-risk communities. They also have programs looking at issues like knife crime and unemployment and radicalisation. So there's a broad spectrum of people who benefit from the Lord's Tavs programs. They're doing good work, um, but they need to have the support to be able to keep doing that work. So if you are able to contribute, um, they would love that. We would love that. You just go to lordstaverners.org. Uh, as simple as that, Lords, obviously, with no apostrophe because it's a URL, and taverners, as in a person who is in a tavern. I've never quite <laughs> established what a taverner is, but I'm just I'm assuming it's basically a nice name for someone who doesn't leave the bar, um, but maybe it's for someone who runs the tavern. Um, but, but who knows? But lordstaverners.org, uh, check out their programs, see what they do, and see if you'd like to be involved. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. Vic Marks, you've got a long relationship with the Wacker. You knew it in your youth. Was there a, a poignant moment when that match came to an end or were you too busy lamenting England's performance? Well, I wasn't doing either of those things, really. I was scrambling to get some copy to my employers <laughs> on time to, I think the right phrase is, to hit the digital hotspot, whatever that may be. <laughs> so I wasn't in tears. And I should preface this by saying, you know, I had one season at the Wacker. It was fantastic, but... In hindsight, I've milked this to death. <laughs> it, was, it was ten games, five games, maybe six first-class mm-hmm. games at the Wacker. And I did okay, and therefore I left, you know, in quite good odour. But what was brilliant was I never came back. <laughs> <laughs> not many, so not they many, still think well of me there. But not many people in that era, or even now, of course, have been internationals playing in the Sheffield Shield. What, what was the background on, on you actually getting a Guernsey? Briefly, I mean, I got a phone call out of the blue well into September from Rod Marsh, who was a selector, who doesn't sort of mince his words, do you want to come and play for WA? He <laughs> said so that was more or less after a quick hello. Well, I said, give us a couple of days to think about it. And well, Anna was very keen... <laughs> And I played one season already of grey cricket in mm. Perth for Bayswater Morley. So I sort of knew the city and I knew how tough the cricket was. So I was a bit concerned about the toughness of the cricket. I knew Sheffield Shield would be demanding, but it was too good a suggestion to turn down. So within a couple of weeks, I was in Perth. And within just a bit more than that, I was playing against South Australia with a team I didn't really know particularly well, <laughs> but I got to know it better as the season went on. As a notoriously nice man coming into <laughs> Perth grade cricket and then Sheffield Shield cricket, was there a culture shock coming from English county cricket? The culture shock was bigger going into grade cricket than it was into Shield cricket. I was over 30, I suppose, when I went to play for WA. But I'd had that season, which I'd enjoyed hugely. But I had got sledged a bit initially for Bayswater. And actually, I think this is right, Kim Hagdorn, I always remember Kim Hagdorn, who was playing for South Perth. And he was a mean sort of seamer. who played one game for WA. And I remember... Bayswater playing against South Perth 
his shirt was flapping wildly. I think I read about it the other day, actually. Mm. And batsman complained, what does he do? He just rips his shirt off, <laughs> throws it to the umpire, and says, can you see all right now? Well, that never happened back at uh, Taunton, I can tell you. So I got used to it, but I also just sort of laughed at him quietly. And that was quite a good response when you get sledged. As shield cricket was, it was still quite steamy, but it was, it was better behaved, I think, at that level than it might be at grade level. There's a correlation, I think, between the standard you're playing, but it's, it's the reverse of what you might expect, I think. Uh, Chris Rogers has spoken about this before, that the hardest cricket he played was the grade cricket he played in Melbourne um. on account of the fact that the AFL culture... No inch given. But that's not your sort of story. I mean, you go to your quick info page and that is a, a line from Wisdom from Matthew Ingalls. Mild, nervy, self-deprecating farm boy with an Oxford degree and no enemies. I mean, that's at once a, a lovely thing to have said about you, but it, it can be interpreted sort of two ways. And you have got that reputation, as Jeff alluded to before, as being the ultimate sort of nice bloke in cricket. Is that an impression you've tried to cultivate over the years or do you think well, that's accurate I'm not sure you are? calculated that too much, but I, I obviously <laughs> get to hear it. But I mean, I think whether it was Somerset or even with W. I, you know, actually, when I was on the field, although I didn't, I didn't sledge anyone because I wasn't very good at it. But I would, might have a few quips with them. But I didn't like losing a great deal, and I liked playing in a good team. And I didn't, you know, give anything away cheaply as, as best I could. So I was, in my own way, quite competitive. But that was not my manner. But it was weird coming to WA. I think there was a certain amount of bewilderment. And I wasn't the first choice, I'm pretty sure. I think they had Pat Pocock, who's an English hospital, oh, yeah. that couldn't quite make it. Might have scored more runs than him, I tell you. <laughs> I did. Um, and I think Siva Ramakrishnan was another one. So I oh. think they must have got through those two, and the time was running short. <laughs> the other logical thing uh, where that might not necessarily couple up is, is the change room you played in at, at Somerset, which is probably one of the more famous change yeah. rooms in the history of professional cricket when you consider some of the international players you had come through there and of course yourself and Peter Roebuck and others that played for England and both of them of course, Joel Garner um, yeah. Richards, I mean, it's, it's a cavalcade of stars, Martin Crow. There's been so many words written Steve about... Steve Waugh. Steve Waugh, indeed. There's so many words written about your, your change room of, of that era. I mean, I was, looking back, absolutely thrilled and privileged to play with some of the great, great players and some characters as well. So, at its best, it was fantastic. And at its worst, it was absolutely dire. <laughs> and I experienced both, you know, in the early days, late 70s, 80s, Both was there hugely ambitious Viv no one had ever heard of Viv he wouldn't qualify now he could not play in English candy cricket now mm. because he wouldn't have played the requisite number of international matches to be right. signed up as an overseas player wow but we knew within I can remember joining the club alongside Viv Both Peter Roebuck local Phil Slocum one other same same season 1974 and Pete and I we were watching and we were doing, there was middle practice going on and we'd never really seen Viv and we were sort of waiting to replace Viv and whoever he was batting with. Had our pads on, ready to go. And then we saw Viv just play one shot against a bit of a, not a great bowler, but it, it was a square cut and it just went like an absolute bullet. It was a majestic shot, April 15th or something. And we just looked at one another and said, well, <laughs> we're going to get in the team ahead of this bloke, whoever he is. <laughs> um, and, and he, within about, I don't know, well, within a couple innings, his first innings was in a one-day game. Pete and I weren't playing, but against Glamorgan, he won man of the match. Fantastic. And you knew with Viv, as opposed to Both, you knew that Viv was destined for the top after one stroke, two innings. Um, Both, you weren't, you couldn't quite see it with Both, to 
be honest. Um, it wasn't that obvious, although we quite like watching him as well. And early on, those those sort of Sunday, one-day comp wins you had, and they got the ball rolling, you got the club moving in the right direction after having no sort of domestic success until that time. It, do you think about those times as, as the best moments of your career when, when, when it was really rocking and rolling there as, you, as well, Gillette Cup days and all the rest? Yeah, maybe, yeah. I mean, they were great days at Taunton. If you, you've been down to Taunton. I have, you yeah. must have done. Yep. And they would be jam-packed, very local support. It's like, it's, I quite like playing in WA because there was that same feeling of us against those sophisticated <laughs> blokes in the East, in Australia, mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. places like Melbourne, yeah. Sydney. <laughs> Fancy uh, and for down in the West Country, it was anyone west, east of Bristol, really, but, you know, especially, they, I don't think there was an M25 then, but anyone inside them was slightly dubious. Mm. I mean, in a way, the most memorable, although we don't want to go into too much detail, was we had two seasons, 78, 79, 78, we'd lost Jack Cup final, and we'd lost the Sunday League having only to win the last game. We'd never won anything. Uh, and we mucked up completely. And the whole and, and none of us will ever forget that weekend because in the second one back at Taunton, we lost narrowly. The first trophy still hadn't been won. Mm. And I just remember that dressing room was absolutely stunned, tears and everything like that. And then we got told, look, you've got to go up onto this little balcony we had. And we was miserable. What? No, we don't do that. And we were forced up there. And there were, I know this sounds pathetic, but there was about six or 7,000 people who just stayed on, mm. and cheered and cheered and cheered, even though we'd lost. And um, I don't think that dressing room ever forgot that. And um, that's why we were, you know, the following season. That was a sort of fantastic impetus. There was a great sort of communal feeling that young side, we knew we had some special players in the making. Uh, but there was this huge pressure. We got to win something. Got to do it at some point. And you know, we did the following year. We had the mirror image. We won the one-day final and we won the Sunday League because it's not a very big place down there. Taunton, not much else happens in the sporting world. It was um, quite magical. And uh, we we also won with Essex too. We had a sort of bond with Essex, who won their first trophies in '79. Right. Sort of slightly unfashionable outsiders. Um, that's a long time ago now. And Viv was at his peak then. I mean, when we lost, Viv was just destroying my room. Just absolutely destroying his Stuart Surridge jumbo <laughs> against the bath. And it just ended up in smithereens. I mean, he was he was distraught as anyone. Getting in on the ground floor of Viv Richards' <laughs> career before anyone knew who he was, is that like buying a Picasso before he died? <laughs> well, I think we knew before anyone else <laughs> that we would go... I mean, I remember watching... Andy Roberts was at Hampshire... Mm. And they were just playing a different game. Uh, again, in that first season, I wouldn't have been in the first team, but I watched a bit and I was probably in the scoreboard working. But we watched him play against Roberts, you know, the two Antigans having their own little personal battle. And Roberts was in another world to what we were used to, no helmets yet. And Viv was taking him on. Sometimes he'd hook him out of the ground, sometimes he'd get hit. And we thought... Well, we can't. This is amazing. We can't compete with this. And I'm not sure we want to go and face Andy Roberts much either. But it was just on another plane. And you know how English professionals, as opposed to Australian ones, of course, can get a bit sort of cynical and they're not too bothered and they don't watch much until it's their turn. But I mean, when Richards was at the crease, everyone was on the balcony because you just Mm. didn't want to miss it. And he was extraordinary. We've heard a lot in this series about the current Ashes series about fast bowling and mm. people keep talking about it all the time. 
when you were going around in that era, there were some incredible fast bowlers in county cricket. Um, was that something that you felt comfortable with early, or did you have to work out how to? Oh, you certainly that? had to work out. I mean, <coughs> I mean, the helmet is a big thing. The helmet came in basically around 78, 77. You had Dennis Amos in England wearing a kind of motorbike helmet. Mm. Mike Brearley had a kind of a cap thing he put underneath his cap, skull cap type of thing. Uh, so that made it, I mean, that in hindsight makes a huge difference. So the first time I came across anyone like that, I played schools cricket and Wayne Daniel was playing for the West Indies. And of course, we'd never seen anything like that. Yeah. Um, and therefore, you didn't you, you didn't allow yourself to get hit on the head. No one got hit on the head. Oh, hardly anyone got hit on the head. So you must have played differently. Uh, but it was more terrifying too. Uh, bec- uh, people were more concerned to make sure they didn't get hit on the head. So that in a way, they had to be braver. Although ostensibly, particularly once you got down to nine, ten, Jack, they looked far more cowardly because mm. they got out of the way. And mm. but you could understand why they got out of the way because if they got hit, they were done for. Um, and there were. Well, Roberts was the first of that breed, probably in candy cricket, and then the other West Indians were the ones. You'd look at the... The old pros would look at the the fixture list. and I mean, the real cynical old pros would probably book in their hamstrings at the right <laughs> time, but I'm not sure that happened at some of that. You know, Sylvester Clark and Courtney Walsh a bit later on. Had to avoid them if he possibly could. Holding would be playing somewhere. The Kiwi, John Wright, yep. was the most popular man in candy cricket for all sorts of good reasons. But one of them was Derbyshire had two, but they could only play one. So if it was John Wright, everyone's rushing up to, oh, it's lovely to see you again, John, because <laughs> you weren't playing against Michael. Right. Um, but, it, yeah, so there were more around, but there weren't, like the Englishmen have to face here, there weren't three. I mean, the, the only parallel with that, is they, they talked about it quite a lot in this series, that... There is not much respite because the Aussies have had three genuinely quick bowlers. And the only parallel for that is that West Indies side of, you know, late 70s, early 80s. At county level, there was usually just one. And you and you were kept watching to see, well, Marshall's just finished a spell, six overs. He can't bowl again for another hour. So if I'm next in, if I get in now, I'll be all right for a bit. I mean, a lot of it, of course, is just getting accustomed you know, you can get accustomed, and you did get a bit more accustomed, but you just needed to be used to this ball coming towards you. We didn't have the radar then, but probably around about the 90 mile an hour mark, which is a huge leap, isn't it? From the 82, 83, 84, up to 90, it's a huge leap. We've seen that in this series, probably. You've got a quite quirky finish to your test career, don't you? Yeah, you, yeah. Your last three test matches were half well, centuries, including <laughs> you know, a 74 and a 55 after an 83, and you were principally there for your bowling. It's odd to have done Sarah. so well with the bat before <laughs> getting given the, given, given the punt. What, what, what actually happened there? In Pakistan, no less. Yeah, well, it was flat. <laughs> it was certainly quite flat there. Well, I should point out, but I was signed by Somerset as a batsman, mm-hmm. and I only learned to bowl quite late in my career. I, you know, I bowled casual off-spin. And so the balance changed. But I used to bat at the start, Somerset above Both, because right. I was a batsman. And then that I evolved as, as sort of more of an all-rounder, an offspring all-rounder. Mm. So it's not entirely surprising I got some runs. I mean, they were on pretty flat pitches, in Faisalabad especially. It was just rolled mud. 
Nonetheless, you are quite well researched. That three, not many people have been left out after three consecutive half centuries, but it was at the sort of end of the tour. And the other thing, it helped me to play in the first place, but there were a few banned South African rebels knocking around. Sounds like a a Robin Hood kind of scenario, though. (laughs) There were banned South African rebels in the forest. (laughs) Well, yeah, so you, yes, but I did get some, and it was very, because my record before that with a bat was hopeless, Uh, but I could bat a bit. So we spoke to Jason Gillespie in the last podcast, dropped from the test side after making an Two hundred. Yeah, well, yeah, and so I better not complain after, you but, know. But three fifties in a row, this is turning into the hard luck club. <laughs> it <laughs> is, yeah. Well, I, you know, I imagine you have to have a record, something like that, to get asked to this club. I'm thinking the, the Glenn Maxwell of your era, you know, handy off-spinning all-rounder, make, uh, tagged as a subcontinent specialist, makes a bunch of runs over there and then gets dropped from the team. Well, more to the yeah. point, would have you been well-suited to the modern era where, I mean, you played a lot of a lot more limited overs cricket for England than yeah, yeah. test cricket. Would, would have, the, would have the, the T20 revolution been the sort of thing that would have suited your game? Well, who knows? I mean, I'm not sure. People play off-spin so much differently and probably so much better now. They were very, you know obedient in the old days and except in Australia where they had different rules in England I would bowl to six men on the leg side and I would bowl I was good at bowling a line if nothing else so it'd be you know right on sort of middle and leg leg mm. in one day cricket and 90% of the batsmen would obediently hit it towards the leg side where you had six of your fielders <laughs> and most of them but not all most of them if you had a long on thought well best not hit it for si- in the air in that direction because I might get caught at long on well, of course all that's disappeared and all these reverse sla- laps and hits you know so it would have taken some adjustment and I wouldn't have been so economical I know that but I'd like to have had a go you, you made a decision Vic towards the end of your uh, first class career to, to pack it in and, and, and work as a full time journalist was that an easy thing to do at the time given how long you'd played for Somerset or was it something that um, was was difficult to you want to get a chance to retire once obviously and um, did you ever sort of get to that stage in the early 90s maybe where you thought yeah, I wish I was still running about or have you, have you been a happy no. retired all throughout I mean I, I was I'd written for a couple of years for the Observer whilst I was still playing mm-hmm. uh, when Shield Berry was the cricket correspondent and Shield then left and I was asked to do it and my initial reaction I would like to have done another year at Somerset I'd only although I captain Somerset a lot over the years it was only in the last year and a bit that I was actually the captain mm-hmm. and I think I would have liked to have done another year partly as a captain and partly as a player however the observer although extremely generous said that we can't hold it so i had to make a decision i was 34 you know i thought fairly long and hard but i never felt uncomfortable about giving up it is weird to have worked for the same paper for so long and i'm sure if i had a bit more zip about me perhaps i'd have spread out but i've always loved cricket Mm. um and I've never really contemplated leaving it. So, in, I don't know about privilege, but lucky, certainly. Yep. Um, and I ain't going to change. There's not much left now. There's not much time to leave <laughs> to do something. <laughs> to, to, to be a champion of industry or anything like that. No, I don't think. Um, so, that's. I mean, it wasn't particularly planned, but along came that job. And, of course, you know, I now realise that the Observer Creek correspondence job of about 25 years ago was a was the perfect job which no longer exists of course but you know we we can't believe how little we had to write really. <laughs> <laughs> Sunday paper exactly Sunday paper once a week that was it full lashes tour I don't you know 
Well, and, uh, it's amazing, really, that we managed to get away with it for so long. <laughs> and, and you've become a daily correspondent. In oh, your, yes, in I, your, have. I mean, I've let, let's, let's call it for what it is. You're in your 60s and you become a daily correspondent. I know. I, this is not the usual way these things work, is it? I know. It just shows you how little control I have over my life. <laughs> <laughs> but that's right. I was, I'm of an age where some people are just sort of toning down a bit. But as you've noticed, Adam, I'm working harder than ever before. The other string to your bow is... Of course, the radio commentary side, working for TMS is, you know, something of a privilege. There are, there are people who adore it. There's, there are, there's a, a fan club in Britain. How did that side of your career come about? Well, I can tell you the, how it came about originally, uh, very briefly, is I was on, as a player, England tour of India, 1984-5. England are on the cusp of winning the Delhi Test Match. Test match specials there, but the summarisers, two of the summarisers, Mike Salvi, who you all know and love, he got a terrible stomach problem at the last day, had to leave. And Abbasali Bay, former Indian test player, had told Peter Baxter, I've got to go to a wedding on the third day. But he'd admitted to tell Peter Baxter that Indian weddings tend to go on for three days. <laughs> <laughs> and England are about to win, and he hasn't got any summarisers. And in those days, Peter Baxter, long-established TMS producer, this is the way it was on that particular tour, just wandered into the England dressing room, basically, and said, is there anyone around who's free? <laughs> um, in a way, you couldn't do now, obviously. Hmm. And uh, I was free. <laughs> I wasn't happy to do it. So I, I sat alongside, certainly Tony Lewis was one of them, and summarised, or you know, sat next to him gleefully, while England won a famous victory in Delhi on the last afternoon. So that was that was the first appearance, pure, pure good luck. And then I did all bits and pieces while I was still playing. Probably Peter Baxter would get you out for a B and H game here mm. and there, or whatever. And when I retired, dear Peter asked me along, you know, sporadically, and you always say yes. <laughs> Was there a particular joy you found to doing that, or was it just there's an opportunity, therefore you should take it? Well, you know, you both know. Mm. It, it's good fun. <laughs> Probably the best broadcasting, you're not too self-conscious, you're not analysing, you're not polishing a piece, you're just there. You can't really prepare that much. Maybe the commentators can a bit, but most of them know their stuff anyway. You just turn up. And in the best, you know, the best way it works is that it is a, a conversation about the cricket. As long as you shut up at the right time, if you're the summariser, you've got to learn to shut up occasionally. You, you wrote a piece for the Night Watchman in your typical self-deprecating style, basically saying, you just don't say anything much and leave it to the person whose job it is to do the talking. Um, is that well, accurate or are you playing that down? Obviously, at radio, you've got to say something. <laughs> But the important thing is to make sure that you do shut up at the appropriate moments, which is, fairly simply, when the bloke's running up to bowl. You've got to shut up. Even if you're in the middle of the best joke or the best piece of advice or whatever it is, you've got to shut up because he's got to tell you what's happened. And then if necessary, if something does happen, then you just lose that gem. But if nothing happens, you just pick it up at the end of the dot. Only the match that I most remember, although I can't remember all the detail, being on right at the end was probably the best one-day match I've ever seen, which was that semi-final World Cup, Edgbaston. Uh, I was on with Tim Lane at mm. the end, as it happened. I mean, it was just a fantastic... I mean, Tim was brilliant. It was a fantastic finale. The only thing I can remember doing right is very early on asking the question, probably not giving the answer, 
what happens if it's a tie? <laughs> and we found out the answer. We'll have to dig out that call because Simon Mann called that for BBC television. Uh, obviously, Bill Laurie's famous call on Channel 9 television and then you and Tim Lane over on the radio. So you're, you're the one that should be on YouTube along t- alongside those two. It's one of the, one well, of the moments. Well, who knows? It. I don't know about that. But I, I, that's, I just remember that as being the best one-day game I've ever seen and getting caught up in the drama of it. On radio, self-deprecation is definitely your shtick. Uh, <laughs> there's, you know, the name of the book... Marks out of eleven, just well. It's a better name than the original one, which was "View from the Balcony." <laughs> yeah, that's not so good. <laughs> no. I mean, unless you were talking about the Viv Richard stuff, remember? No, no. But I mean, that you know, that's a brilliant piece of, of putting oneself down. Is that does that just come naturally to you, or do you find that's a useful to work way to navigate it. the world? Well, that's a that's a that's a difficult, deep question. I that's mean, I think it, I mean I don't think it's a new development, and it may be a sort of safety valve. But that's the way I've been most of the time. I can lurch, actually. A bit. Well, I, forget the self-deprecation bit. I, could, I can lurch from being the Somerset farmer's son, which I was, and, you know, simple self-deprecating. And just occasionally I can pretend to be the Oxford graduate with a classical degree, not a very good one, but as good as Daniel Nolcross. <laughs> <laughs> we went to the same college, as it happens, in different times, same tutors. So I don't know where I am, but I can look, say, and the self-deprecation. But it gets you by, doesn't it, without mm. getting too much hassle. They liked it. I mean, they liked it in grey cricket, you know, it diffused situations. I right. don't remember. Towards the end of my time into great cricket, I can't remember being sledge much. They just didn't bother. Uh, I jumped over that. I meant to ask you about your, your degree at Oxford. Well, you know, we can, I, no, we've I, had only, enough of that. <laughs> I, I, only to the extent that I, I, I was curious about the, you know, the, the farmer's son from Somerset ending up at Oxford. It's not the most natural fit. <laughs> no, no. What, what, how, how did this occur? Well, I know it's a long it's, time ago. Well, but it's a long time ago, and it was fairly accidental. But I, I went... In those days, I went to an independent school in Devon, and anyone who went there, who was capa- capable, were siphoned in to go to university. You just sort of went, they pushed you in that direction, come right. what may. I mean, if you want, I mean, it was a huge thing for me to go to Oxford, not from a, so much from an academic point of view, but from a cricket point of view. Because we played, my first match at Oxford was right after the 74-5 tour. There was Greggy captaining Sussex. John Snow was bowling. My first ball in first... You know, it was fantastic to play against all these guys. So, but I snuck into Oxford, if I'm honest, because, partly because of what I read, which was a less popular course. If I'd said I wanted to do PP in Lord Oxford, I'd been laughed at, but I managed to sneak in, not knowing that that was the way to do it, but I did. It would be remiss of us not to ask about Peter Roebuck, who you played with and close friends with and you talked about your Somerset days and with him and obviously as someone who Jeff and I have grown up reading and listening to and taking a lot of direction from and the way he did his job you, mm-hmm. you knew him when you were teenage boys weren't you really you, were, you just yeah. had a very long standing friendship were you immediately close were you close from when you first met or did that take time well, to warm to each other not long I mean I first played with him for England public schools actually under 15 against ESCA that's the English Schools Cricket Association the non-public schools if you like and the ESCA teams had played North, South, East, West in the early part of the week and they'd pick their best team play against the public schools and one year we went 13th man for ESCA Ian Botham (laughs) 13th man so you can imagine he left immediately in high dudgeon so I knew Pete from about the age of 15 although I got to know him much better when we joined the staff and we were soon contrasting mates he was my best man actually Mm. 
And we travelled, you know, these tortures, we were hopeless. We travelled around the country getting lost frequently. He would bellow at me for being such a hesitant, slow driver. We couldn't listen to any directions. We got lost, we listened to radio on, you know, the Friday nights was always any questions. He would get incredibly animated about this idiot on any questions, mm. talking rubbish. He'd shout at the radio as I drove on. And we kind of laughed at the same things. What I mean, I, I knew Pete well, especially well. Pete got on extremely well with both, too, in those early days, it should be noted. So we knew each other well. And when he... I was leaping forward. There was lots of great stuff written about Pete after he died um, by all sorts of people. A lot of the people in press boxes this side and back in England. I don't think Pete recognised how respected he was actually in England. He, he declined to see that. And the tenor was always, you know, a bit grim as well. But I, and, and the only thing that I sort of regretted about all those pieces is that I knew that when he was younger, he wasn't quite so tortured. He laughed at himself, well, as you, you know, he's not, his autobiography was sometimes mm. I forgot a lot. He laughed at himself quite a lot. And whilst there were clearly some dark and incredibly difficult sides to him, all that in his 20s stuff, when he was, you know, part of a, an, an amazing team and he kind of laughed at himself and we all laughed at him and, and he tried like fury and he would have low moments as well. But all that was kind of forgotten in this morass of this tortured character. Do you, do you see what I mean? Yeah. That, that bit had all passed by and been forgotten completely. And I suppose out of, you know, partly from my own point of view, I just wanted to remember those bits as well. I mean, I was furious when I... Well, who knows what happened, but if he was furious with him when he died, really, in, in one way. And we had grown a bit apart, and, you know, didn't see him as much in the old... You know, from this century onwards, really. Mm -hmm. But we were very close for a long time, and we'd laugh at the same things about the absurdity of playing cricket, and we both... And he would tell you I was a bit more ruthless, and, you know, I let on. <laughs> The nature of his death was so public and there are really no answers mm. about it. There are lots of people who will tell you that they have the answers, but mm. the more you look into the subject, nobody does. That lack of surety seems to be a wound with people who knew him well. The fact that there is this lack of resolution is something that continues to affect people to this day. What I notice about it, and you said you've picked this up, even though you, you know, you've both worked with the ABC, but mm. not alongside him, is there is a sort of legacy there that is surprising given that he was, you know, a good candy cricketer. But it's mostly from his work, broadcasting and his writing, I guess. And it's probably more prevalent in Australia. Well, it certainly is more prevalent in Australia. And therefore, there must have been something special. He touched people from beyond cricket, I guess, mostly, mostly from his writing, but also from, from his idiosyncratic broadcasting. It's a curious legacy, but it exists. And it wouldn't exist for many people. No, I think that for, for reasons that are complicated and uh, mm. that a lot of people identified with his way of writing and, and his way of in interpreting the game mm. uh, through the through the spoken word as well uh, the first time that he uh, received uh, particularly brutal press coverage well there's three watershed moments really isn't there there's the 1986 Somerset mm -hmm. brouhaha which you're obviously a senior member of the club at the time and the fallout that did you think that changed him as a person uh, in a way that... that, that uh I think it was an absolutely fundamental moment in his life. Mm. It was a huge decision, which... He didn't necessarily inaugurate that decision, but he could have stopped it, and he was the captain. So he had the final say. He didn't promote it initially. And I've never seen him... It was, a, it was an amazing period. It was a horrendous period to be part of it in many ways. And yet, in one way, I'd never seen anyone so alive. He was stimulated by the whole process of special meetings, and, and but it was also tortuous for him, you know. 
I wasn't at the famous meeting because I had sensibly absconded to WA. So he was incredibly alive then and he enjoyed the sort of debate, all that side of things, but obviously not the abuse. And I was about the only one inevitably talking a bit to both sides. Not to any good effect particularly, but I, you know, I was still on speaking terms with both sides. I remember saying to Pete, I wouldn't do this. But then we are very different characters. He was much more confrontational than I was instinctively. And so I wouldn't have taken that decision myself. But, but it stayed with him for years, that decision. And that moment, I think. It, it stayed with him far longer than the other relevant protagonists. Both shook it off in the end and Viv and Joel. But I think Pete always... He almost wanted um, affirmation that this was the right decision from the likes of me and I'm not sure I ever gave it to him. Is it frustrating that the actual person you knew is kind of lost in the stories? Pete? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think that's... I mean, that's partly what I was thinking about when I read all these wonderful sort of appreciations or analyses of Pete's life. Um, and I... So, I, I, they, you know... They were very good at focusing on all the angst and the, the, the things we don't know about and the darker bits without maybe appreciating... I mean, if you, I bet you've read It Never Rains all those years ago. Mm. I mean, it's, it's a terrific book and there are many dark moments in it, but there are many humorous moments in it and it's, there was more to him than just being... as it was on his radio commentary, I'm sure. When, you know, people would have picked that up. Did, uh, did you maintain a friendship with Ian Botham? sort of either side of the, the falling out they have and, and to this day? Yeah, more or less, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't see so much of him, but it's, we're, it's no problem. But I'm good at that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, and, I, you know, I... I mean, I, it, it, I don't want to, I don't know if I should say this, really, but I would... But I will, because it's, it's, you know, among friends. But, I, you know, you'd come over to Australia and I'd find myself at lunch somewhere in Melbourne or something. There'd be... Pete and Ciappelli having lunch. And I like both those people. And just occasionally I'd come and sit, you know, I'd sit next to them. And then the subject of both would come up mm. and they kind of fueled each other fantastically. <laughs> and they, well, I'd just have to zoom, do another food and just leave them to it because I, you know, they both has many virtues as well. And I didn't really want to sit and listen to it really. She said that Ian left it behind. What happened at Somerset kind of left it there, but obviously maintained some animosity towards mm. um, Peter. Did you ever sort of encourage him to let that go? Or was, was, it, was, it, was it well beyond that point? No, is the simple answer, I guess. I mean, both is not easy to turn round. No, not much easier than Ian Chapel, probably. <laughs> Viv, you'd have to ask Viv, but I think Viv, you know, was more open, perhaps. Viv and Pete were very close when they were youngsters in the team, and it might not have been quite so straightforward with Viv. And Viv, you know, I think put it behind him in the end, but he was very hurt at the time, obviously. It seems an unlikely <laughs> partnership, though, Viv, Viv Richards and Peter but, No, they were, honestly. Viv's son was called Marley, and he was called Marley because he asked Pete to find him what he thought might be an appropriate name. And he did. And that was, you know, back in probably the very early 80s. And Pete had such high hopes of Viv as well. So maybe he was dis disappointed. He thought, you know, beyond cricket, he sort of worshipped him in a way, if he worshipped anyone. 
Viv was, you know, he, he would support him, he'd bat well with him, you know, he respected Pete as a battler on the field. So I promise you, f- f- in those, you know, first six, seven, eight years, uh, they, they, in their own way, as did both, they, in their own way, they had quite a, an interesting relationship and quite a positive one. Both and Pete would have ridiculous arguments about politics, which were comical. Both would give nothing. Pete would be forensically brilliant. But th- you know that's the way it was, and it was you know it was fine. It was great. So I, I don't know when the you know when the turning point was, but maybe somewhere in the mid early eighties. You've had a long and richly varied life in cricket. What's the best thing that the game's given you? Oh, Gordon Bennett, Jeff. Uh, I don't know. I think I've fleeced the game, haven't I? <laughs> it's given me, Jeff. It's given me an income. <laughs> Will that do you? Not a very big one, I hasten to add to any Guardian sort of listeners. But, but, the, but no, well, it's given me more than an income. I've loved the game ever since, and I can't quite believe. Stop making this sound like an obituary, for heaven's sake. I've got, I've got, a, I've got a few years it. in me yet. <laughs> we I've so. always thought obituaries should be done for the living. You know? It wouldn't have been much nicer, or eulogies at least, if people stood up and made nice speeches about someone while they were still there to hear them. Well, it's clearly, it's clearly the case. I'm not suggesting you're about to pop your clothes. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're still I've them. run out of cliches, Jeff. <laughs> but you still do. You still, it's palpable. You're still like, sitting with you the last few tests, but it's clear that you are still consumed by this game. Yeah, I, yes, it's pathetic, isn't it? <laughs> it is. But I, uh, and I get annoyed when I think, you know, that's not right, and all that, quietly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been, it has been, certainly in my working life, it's just completely dominated it. And I, and I get ticked off by my wife, you know, I'm, I'm not working and there's a game going on. And I just have a quick look on the box. And, <laughs> what are you doing watching that? Well, it's work, it's work. They, you know, this man could, you know, be a vital person. And, uh, so, um... <laughs> There we go. It's cricket. I mean, I'm more of a cricket. I still see myself more as a cricket man than a sort of journalist, if I'm honest. And you may have spotted why. Who, who among us hasn't watched Zimbabwe v Sri Lanka at four in the morning well, and told, us, <laughs> told ourselves that it's for research? <laughs> well, I haven't done it that often, but yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't have it any other way. Vic, uh, you've, uh, you've given us a, a huge amount of your time uh, and uh, at the end of a long test match and... We're incredibly grateful for it. Uh, you've obviously done such a remarkable amount across a very long period of time in the game and doing our podcast is but one small thing there, but uh, it, it's, it's wonderful. It's been wonderful to have you on. And uh, Well, I want you, you two to keep writing lots until the end of the tour, all right? <laughs> That's the we'll, deal. <laughs> we'll do our best. And obviously it's not your eulogy, but it's good to know that you've outlived the whacker. Big <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Marks, thank you very much for being on The Final Word. Cheers. It's the final word story time with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Fantastic to have that Vic Marks interview uh, back on our feed again. One of the truly great men uh, of our sport and of journalism and commentary and what a wonderful life he's had in the game, Jeff. As far as story time goes, Vic has plenty. I'm glad we got a few of them. But I know there are a whole lot more. We could probably just do a whole series, just do a whole season of Vic Mark chats. Um, but look, this is this is... This is story time. This is what we're doing. We're taking our time. We're stretching out on the weekends. You know, if, if you want things more focused, you can come in on the early in the week show and get the news and views. But if you want to just kick back on a Saturday, take it easy. I've actually got the fire lit in this room. Like it's, you know, it's the full deal. I'm wearing slippers. It probably sounds like it because it feels like it.
And the reason we're able to do story time is because so many people have been so good to us uh, through Nerd Pledge, patreon.com forward slash the final word. We're just chuffed that we've hit 501. It's a big achievement for Jeff and I. We're really proud of it and we're really proud of the community that we've been able to create in that platform, on that platform rather, over the last five or six months or so during lockdown. So patreon.com forward slash the final word. If you're able to review or rate us on iTunes, that makes a big difference as well in terms of getting this program to as many people as we can uh, from week to week. Bad Producer Productions, Jay Mueller, Astrid Edwards and Dave Collins, who do a phenomenal job in keeping us on the park now twice a week, which is a massive effort at their end. So thank you to them. All of their shows are at badproducerproductions.com. That link is sitting in the show notes. Thank you to Jeff, uh, as always, uh, for uh, being there to do this show twice a week. It's a big commitment, especially while you've been writing a book. And now we're at the other end of that process. And we're going to really enjoy ourselves. I know you've got some editing to go and, of course, we're both very busy at the moment, but I'm, I'm going to enjoy the fact that you are um, free of this book and you're able to not be working off two hours sleep each day and you're going to be able to really indulge in even more final word activity as we work through <laughs> the last few months of the UK summer and then crash bang into another Australian season when we get to October and November. It'll be season nine pretty soon. Uh, it, it, wow. uh, it, it keeps coming. It keeps coming, but we're, we're glad about it. Yeah, the final word comes at you fast. Stick with us. We'll be back on the weekly show early next week to talk about the second test between England and Pakistan, Australia's tour of England, which has been formally announced overnight, and many other things, I'm sure, between now and then. Have a lovely weekend. Thanks for listening to Storytime. We'll talk to you soon. Ciao. I had to go.